Hello and welcome back to Brain Food for General Counsel, where we try to help you navigate the toughest challenges your organisation faces. My name's Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at professional services firm Pinsent Masons. And today we are going to hear from two academics and writers who will upend your thinking on one of the most basic elements of a commercial lawyer's life, property. What is a career in business law but a decades-long wrestle with the idea of property? What do we have? How do we get or make more of it? Who else wants it? Do we have a right to do this or copy that? Do we own a building to put everything in? Who owns our company? We very rarely stop to think about what property actually is and how it functions, to look at the philosophical underpinnings of the idea that I own something and therefore can charge you to gain possession or use of it. But that's exactly what Michael Heller and Jim Saltzman do in their book Mine, which the Financial Times named as one of its top Christmas reads last month. If you think property is stable, or that our attitudes and laws relating to it are based on reason or ethics, or that ownership is simply a fact out there in the world, untouched by economic or political forces, then you might be in for a surprise. I talked to Michael and Jim about everything from airplane seat struggles to which child owns a particular spade, via the strategic advantages of turning a blind eye to piracy, or embracing ownership ambiguity. Their takes on how a creative approach to property can generate business and income opportunities where none seemed to exist are fascinating. But we started with the basics, with Michael explaining why ownership is not nearly as stable as we think it is. For us to get through our ordinary days, uh, you know, to line up to get a cup of coffee um, or to find the parking space, we have to have a pretty clear understanding of what's mine and what's yours. And indeed, that's something that kids know from the very earliest ages. They know one of the very first words that kids use is, it's mine. But what we show in the book is that mine is very much up for grabs. That when people are saying something is mine, what they're actually doing is choosing from one of just six simple stories uh, that helps them claim resources for themselves. And almost always, there's another story, another version of mine that's available, that's just as basic and as simple as the mine that kids shot in the playground. And part of what understanding how ownership works today is knowing how those six simple stories uh, get used uh, by, uh, by lawyers, uh, and by business people, uh, to make claims on uh, scarce resources. Michael and Jim have identified six kinds of ownership. They call them stories, ways people think to justify claiming an asset or a right. They are, first come, first served, it's yours because you were here first. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, it's yours because it's in your hand. You reap what you sow, it's yours because of the labour you put into it. My home is my castle. It's yours because it's on your property. Our bodies, ourselves. It's yours because it's part of you. And the meek shall inherit the earth. It's yours because you have a moral right to it. These all seem reasonable, but things start to get interesting when these justifications clash. And this isn't just about notional, intangible kinds of property like a trademark or a non-fungible token, of which more later. No, these stories still govern one of the most fundamental kinds of possession humanity has developed, possession of land. 
In their book, they describe how someone might own a square patch of land, whether they put a fence around it or not. This is the possession is nine-tenths of the law story. But if townspeople take a diagonal shortcut across it for 70 years, they establish a right of way through use, through the reap what you sow story. The owner of the land now can't put a fence around it. So reap what you sow trumps possession in this case. But there isn't a clear hierarchy of stories. Apply the possession and reap what you sow stories to the Parthenon marbles of ancient Greece, controversially housed in the British Museum in London. The UK can claim rights due to the possession story and the reap what you sow story because of preservation work done on them and safe storage. But not many people would claim that these trump the my home is my castle claim of Greece, that the marbles were part of the Parthenon. Not to mention the reap what you sow labour story of sculptor Phidias who actually made the things. These clashes are everywhere, including on airplanes over the few centimetres of space between you and the person in front, says Michael. Well, let's give you a very simple example. So many of your, uh, many of your listeners um, uh, fly a lot on airplanes. Uh, so when they get on a plane and somebody leans back into their, you know, they, they get their plane, they're on their laptop, they're sitting down to work for a client, um, and the person in front of them leans the seat right into their lap. Uh, and, they, and they want to say, no, no, push, push back. Um, so what's going on there? Who actually owns, who controls that wedge of space um, between uh, the two seats? So you, sitting there with your knees squished and your laptop uh, literally in your lap, you say, no, that space is mine. I had it first. The seat was up when the plane took off. I possessed it uh, with, my, um, uh, with, my, uh, with my knees and with the laptop itself. So those are actually two of the six simple stories. Possession, first in time, it's mine. Um, but the person in front is also asserting a story of ownership. They're saying attachment. That wedge of space is attached to my seat. The little recline button um, uh, moves, you know, moves the seat back. So what you have there um, on, the, on that airplane seat is mine versus mine, first and possession versus attachment. That's three of the six stories. That's a fairly trivial example, but that same conflict between attachment and possession or first is also what's going on today with data ownership. Who owns your clickstream? Who owns the record of your likes and looks as you move online? All ownership conflicts reduce down to those same very few simple stories. Interesting enough, but Jim says we can easily miss the most important element here, which is that the two passengers are fighting with each other and not with the airline which created the situation in which conflict was almost inevitable. The airline's ambiguity about who owns those few centimetres allows it to effectively sell that space twice and distract the buyers with intra-customer conflict. So let's say you and Michael are having this tussle back and forth. And when I say tussle, I'm, I'm, I'm being modest. There are articles all the time, once you start looking for them, of fights that break out midair uh, over a reclining, reclining airline seat. You're getting angry at each other. What's interesting is you're not getting angry at the real owner of the wedge, which is the airline. Why are these fights breaking out now? When I you know, flew decade, 20 years ago, there were no flights. There were no fights, I should say, over reclining airline seats. What's happened is that the airlines have basically reduced what's called the pitch, which is the, dis- the difference between the seats. 
And the space also is more valuable because we're now using laptops. We didn't used to, we basically used to use that space simply, you know, for putting down the, the tray table and eating rubber chicken. So here's what's interesting, right? So the airlines have created this conflict because they've made valuable uh, area uh, scarcer. They could have a rule, right? They could be clear, you have the right to recline. Or they could say, you have to ask before you recline. They don't do that. And the reason they don't is a tool that Michael and I describe in our book called uh, ownership ambiguity. They are deliberately making who owns that space ambiguous. They're doing it for a few reasons. The first is it basically shifts the anger and the frustration uh, away from them toward the passengers. It makes the overall experience, because it's less comfortable, you're creating more demand for the now economy plus streets, right? Those never used to exist before. There's now this whole new class of, of, of seats that they can sell. And so the beauty of it essentially is that they are creating this ownership conflict to benefit them, right? It, 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 it could be different, but it's not. They're being very, very clear. They're not going to define ownership. They benefit from uncertain ownership in this space. The airline here has engaged in what Jim and Michael call ownership design or ownership engineering. We've largely looked so far at ownership disputes that seem to arise naturally or through conflict between individuals. But companies can and do make choices about how property operates for their own advantage, says Michael. This is not something uh, that is taught in law schools. And it's often not something uh, that lawyers know to advise their clients, uh, which is that ownership uh, can be engineered Uh, just like any other feature of a corporation's products, Uh, where the buttons are, uh, where the levers are, um, how the product works. Uh, All of those features of product design have a complement, which is ownership design, which is how we structure ownership um, as a uh, center for profit uh, within the corporation. Uh, Many uh, most cutting-edge tech companies today, uh, surprisingly, and counterintuitively um, uh, prefer to allow for theft of some of their product. So to give you an example, um, when we ask our students, um, how many of you uh, stream uh, your Netflix uh, show or some other streaming content uh, illegally? How many of you are are using uh, somebody else's password? Uh, All of their hands go up. They all do this. They all stream content illegally. And we ask how many of you know it's illegal? About half of them do. This is law students, mind you. Um, and HBO and Netflix, the big streaming companies, they also know this. Netflix can find you. They can find, uh, they can find the people who are illegally taking their content. It's not hard to do. The record companies did that a generation ago. So Napster was shut down, but Netflix learned from that. So what Netflix learned is it's actually more profitable to allow a certain amount of theft of their content. Um, And they view theft, in this context, as a customer acquisition strategy. It helps build their pipeline of future customers. So um, tolerated theft, which is a second strategy alongside strategic ambiguity, turns out to be something that many of the most advanced um, tech companies are using uh, to uh, increase their revenue streams. Ownership design is where Michael's and Jim's ideas go from interesting philosophical question to the kind of strategic insight you can act on. They have identified three strategies that depend on non-traditional views of property and ownership. First up, 
tolerating theft. Michael says that Netflix turning a blind eye to password sharing or Microsoft putting up with piracy of its software in developing markets are examples of theft toleration in the service of building market share and customer acquisition. But he had a more surprising example from a company that had a change of heart on intellectual property protection. The Disney Corporation, um, historically one of the most aggressive intellectual property defenders, uh, did a big pivot in recent years uh, to actually tolerate quite a lot of theft of its IP, um, not as a customer acquisition strategy like Netflix, but as a product R&D strategy. What Disney does today is they look around at the web at all the pirate fan websites that are selling um, innovative uh, Mickey Mouse gear. So, for example, Bibbidi Bobbidi Brook, this pirate website, uh, came up with um, uh, sparkly uh, Mickey Mouse ears, rose-colored sparkly Mickey, Mickey Mouse ears that she started selling online. And Disney, rather than shut her down, hey, said, hey, that's actually a great idea. And Disney then started selling those same design at the official Disney uh, merchandise uh, stores. And it was a huge hit. So what Disney has realized is that tolerated theft uh, is a way to do very cheap uh, product R&D. So tolerated theft is a second example of, uh, of sort of how uh, cutting-edge corporations uh, can th- rethink their IP strategy, their property rights strategy, to engineer more value out of ownership itself. The next ownership engineering strategy is foregoing ownership, which Michael says Tesla and IBM both embraced when they gave away their ideas or supported others' platforms in a bid to create a new market that they could sell to. What he's done is he's made all of Tesla's patents. There they did patent uh, the basic electric vehicle technology. But he makes all those patents uh, openly accessible. His theory is that having more robust competitors having a more robust ecosystem of electric vehicles um, is actually more valuable ultimately to Tesla than protecting his patents. So he wants his competitors um, at all the other big um, EV electric vehicle companies to adopt his technology essentially for free uh, in order to make electric vehicles the dominant vehicle on the road. He wants uh, all cars everywhere to be electric uh, so that there's more charging stations, so that there's more infrastructure, so that there's a more robust electric vehicle um, ecosystem out there from which, in, in, within which he can be a dominant part. So growing the market uh, by abandoning um, IP uh, turns out to be uh, his, uh, part of what's made Tesla uh, perhaps the most valuable car company in the world. Um, IBM does the same thing, it turns out. IBM uh, basically gave away a billion dollars um, of engineers' time uh, to grow Linux. Uh, which is a open-source software which many of its competitors use. Uh, IBM realized um, that, like, like Tesla, they, if they could grow the market for Linux, they could then sell services, IBM services, on top of that open network. The third strategy is one we've touched on already, leaning into ambiguity. This is what the airlines we talked about do when they refuse to clarify who controls that space between seats. The passengers argue amongst themselves and the airline gets to ever increase the capacity and profit of their aircraft. This strategy might culturally be the hardest for lawyers to embrace as it goes against so much of what we understand about what good legal advice is. Certainty is what we think our clients and stakeholders crave and it's very hard to deliver. But still, we strive for it. The ambiguity strategy demands that we just 
like go, as Michael says, Airbnb does. When uh, Airbnb, for example, uh, moves into a new uh, country or into a new city, um, the ownership regime around um, short-term, what they essentially have created was a short-term rental market, uh, was uh, absolutely ambiguous. Um, and rather than clarify that ambiguity, they simply moved into those markets um, ahead of uh, ahead of any ownership clarity. Um, so, um, you know, a general counsel might say, you know, before we create a company like Airbnb, we need to know what the regulatory environment is that we're going to be operating in. We could basically create a company and get shut down. Uh, but Airbnb and then uh, Uber um, uh, after them uh, said just the opposite. Said we're going to um, we're going to embrace ownership ambiguity. We're going to use ownership ambiguity as indeed the tool that is going to jumpstart our company. Um, so they move in. Ownership is ambiguous. They create a market. They create, um, in Airbnb's case, thousands or tens of thousands of uh, flat owners who are suddenly uh, you know, getting a second income from Airbnb uh, or uh, drivers who are getting a second income or first income uh, from Uber. And then those drivers or flat owners uh, or homeowners uh, become the advocates for uh, actually disambiguating, for creating a property regime, uh, which then incorporates uh, Airbnb or Uber into that local regulatory regime. Uh, but, the, but the method is one of starting from and embracing, tolerating ambiguity, and then working from that, working forward from there. This kind of thinking will be a real challenge to many people working in business law. It simply turns out assumptions about what ownership is on their head. But thinking creatively and laterally about property can open up unimagined opportunities, say Michael and then Jim. It goes against all of your training. It goes against all of your, all of your professional instincts um, as counsel and as, and as a lawyer. It certainly goes against my uh, background as a, um, as a property theorist. This is all that I think about and work on is how do we design ownership? When I first started working um, uh, in this area uh, many decades ago, some of my earliest work was in uh, socialist countries that were making the transition to capitalism uh, for the World Bank uh, in, the, in the 90s into these countries. And our overwhelming um, uh, concern uh, was to create clarity of property rights. That's what lawyers do. We want to have clear, well-defined private property rights. Um, and in many cases, uh, that turned out to be a disastrous approach, that the clarity that we were seeking uh, was the opposite, uh, was not wealth creating, which we thought it was, that um, the clarity was actually wealth destroying. Prior to going into academia, I was the European environmental manager for Johnson Wax. And I was constantly butting heads with the general counsel's office because their view, from my perspective, was what we call CYA uh, in the United States, was basically, you know, cover yourself, uh, avoid any, any possible risk. Um, and you can understand that, right? If, if the company gets into trouble, the finger is going to point immediately at the general counsel's office. And uh, what Michael and I are suggesting is that that's fine, that, that's an important role, but realize also that uh, perhaps surprisingly, uh, legal strategies uh, over how things are owned can actually be revenue generating, right? So the expertise of lawyers doesn't simply have to be to protect the client against any and all possibilities, and it can also lead to insights uh, on how new profit streams can be generated. What we're saying is think strategically. We don't generally think of ownership engineering. 
and what we're saying is lawyers actually may be well-placed to be entrepreneurs, to, to be sort of ownership engineers. We're not saying forget about ownership, it doesn't matter. We're saying actually quite the opposite. Ownership matters even more than you may realize because it's not simply this sort of binary, uh, we must protect ownership at all costs or you know, willy-nilly. No, it's that you can craft the different ways that we own things to actually work to the company's, to the company's benefit. So if there was sort of one message that we'd want to share with, the, with your listeners, it's to, uh, for them to ask themselves, what are the different ways our assets could be owned? Which is not something that general counsels ask, but we think they should. Uh, and as Michael said, uh, the most sort of innovative, um, savvy companies, they very much are asking these questions. We've restricted ourselves so far to pretty concrete examples. But we live in a time when whole new classes of resources are being created all around us. Cryptocurrencies, DNA sequences, behavioural data. And the current big thing in alternative assets, NFTs. Non-fungible tokens are a highly controversial kind of asset that are subject to the kind of price inflation that would make the tulips of 17th century Amsterdam blush. NFTs give you rights over a particular digital asset, usually an image, and control of some of the future economic behaviour of that asset, like a share of future sales. Lots of people tied to normal supply and demand economics just don't understand why others are flocking to pay huge sums for digital copies of a file that's usually otherwise freely available. So is this an example of creative ownership? Jim doesn't think so. Here's an example uh, where people are selling things that are not only sort of the same, they are quite literally identical in terms of ones and zeros. And yet they somewhat arbitrarily have said, we're going to identify one of these identical copies as somehow the first, the original, the NFT. Uh, they're basically totally creating uh, artificial scarcity. Uh, and Michael and I, to our amazement, uh, keep saying, how can, this, how can this generate value? And yet, they, you know, some of these keep selling for tens of thousands of pounds and more. Um, but it's, it's, it's a totally artificial sense of scarcity, right? The NFT they're purchasing, in terms of ones and zeros, is totally identical. Uh, to all the others. I, I remain befuddled, but I'm also a professor, right, instead of a, uh, instead of a financial whiz. So maybe it's not surprising that I'm befuddled. But the rest of those intangible assets, biological or behavioural data, cryptocurrencies, highly engineered financial products, they are potentially highly susceptible to imaginative thinking about ownership. If I look at my phone, right, my, my smartphone, um, what do I actually own of value? Well, it turns out what I own of value is a plastic brick, right? What gives the cell phone actual value? It's the operating system. I don't own that. The data on it, I actually don't own the data on that phone. And, but we don't think about it that way. There was a study that was done where people were asked, uh, if you buy a book or a song on, on the internet, um, you know, digitally, uh, is it the same as owning a, a sort of an LP or owning a CD or owning a, an actually hardcover book? 80% said, yes, it is. They're wrong, right? You don't own it in the same way. Amazon can't walk into your uh, study, into your living room and say, I'll take that book back. Thank you very much. Or they don't even they won't say thank you very much. I just say, I'll take it back. Um, they can and have actually taken eBooks and iTunes off people's devices uh, for various for various reasons. It doesn't happen often, but it can happen. 
Uh, and it, it, it's really a fundamental shift that hasn't taken place yet in, in terms of how we just assume uh, we own certain things. So, you know, when you, uh, for instance, say you maybe may, may want to fly for a weekend to Berlin or something, you still go on, you go on the, the, the search engine, you, you look for flights to Berlin, and then this bizarre thing happens, which is every other website you go to, suddenly these ads pop up about hotels in Berlin and restaurants in Berlin. You know, that's not coincidence, right? The search engines are selling your clickstream to advertisers. This, this, um, these transactions power mu much of the internet economy. And as Michael was saying, well, who owns the fact that you type that search in? You could say it's mine, and there's another story here, which is labor, right? I, I typed it in there. You could say it's mine because of self-ownership. My clickstream is part of me. The web producers say, well, it's labor, right? We put in the effort to build this, this, cool, app, this cool app that you went to, and so you, you, you reap what you sow, right? So we made the effort to build it. We get the clickstream uh, data uh, or attachment, right? Your, your clickstream is attached to our website. The key point in that story is this is up in the air, right? In Europe and California, uh, there's more interest uh, in having the individual own that information. Other parts of the world, it goes the other way. In, in much of the U.S., frankly, it's, it's, it's unsettled. Michael and Jim think that creative uses of ownership can help solve the world's biggest social problems too. Giving people who live in or near massive forests ownership of the carbon-soaking capacity of those forests gives them an income that means they're less likely to engage in logging. Understanding the quite deliberate ownership rules that increasingly allow staggering wealth to travel between generations with minimal taxation will help tackle poverty and lack of social mobility. And understanding that ownership is never absolute and unchallenged, and that those six stories can unlock the power dynamics which are always at play, is a lesson that they would like each of us to learn, as Michael explains. Well, this goes back to how personal property is, right? You know, you watch your kid in the playground and they're, they're, you know, they're fighting with another kid over a shovel. And one of them, they're both shouting mine. Um, and as you dig into it a little bit deeper, as you sort of figure out like, what's going on between these two kids, you realize one of the kids is saying, you know, I had it first, one of the six simple stories. And the other kid is saying, I'm holding on to it. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. So one of our hopes for citizens um, is that they take that the, the very simple intuitions that we all share about ownership and begin to see uh, that those intuitions that they have are actually uh, can be simplified down to a very small handful of stories that we all know and realize that many of the ownership conflicts that really do matter to them, gender inequality or wealth inequality or climate change, um, many of the most important political and social issues of our day are actually battles over which of those simple stories is going to dominate. And once you as a citizen or as a consumer realize that, you know, airlines are selling the same space twice or that Facebook and Google um, are asserting a labor story against your self-ownership story, once you realize that ownership isn't a given, that it isn't natural, that it isn't timeless, that ownership is always constantly a choice among a very small handful of competing stories, once you realize that, then our hope is that with that vision, with that clarity, you begin to see the world around you in a very different way. You realize 
um, that you're sort of a fish swimming in water, right? Fish don't realize that they're in water. Um, and water, in this context, is the ownership tools and ownership design that governments and businesses are using to steer you to do what they want. That what you think of as just a natural, simple story is actually a choice by a, gov- by a business to extract value from you or a government to steer you one way versus another, then you can begin to make some changes. You can begin to pressure uh, people uh, that uh, are the decision makers. Hey, we think the rule should be this instead of that, that we, we should control our online data, that we, you begin to have the intellectual tools uh, to push back. Thank you for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Counsel podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting team at pincentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this or past programmes, please do rate and review them. It helps us to reach other people who might also be interested. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the purpose-led international professional services firm with law at its core. <laughs>